So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 23. As you get there, I just want to say thank you for being patient with us as we work through the Psalms this summer. Thank you, Brian, for uh, coming alongside of it with me. My plan for the next 10 years uh, is to, every summer, knock out uh, 10 Psalms. And hopefully in 10 years, we'll make our way through the bulk of them. So Psalm 23, and uh, if you have your pew Bible, it's on 558. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you now and ask your blessing upon your word. The parable that Jesus preached, it reminds us that the sower sows really good seed And depending upon the hearts of men and women and children who receive it, it bears fruit or it is choked out and withers and dies. My prayer is that you would engage us by your spirit and cause us to be those who allow your word to fall upon soft, fertile ground, that the word of God might strengthen us and it might bless us and it might return a hundredfold. Do this, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. This psalm is uh, one of our favorites, and I don't say our, just speaking of us in here, that uh, several scholars will say that, that Psalm 23 is like a soft pillow for a weary soul. That Think about the image of your bed and your pillow, and when you're tired, how you just want to go home and, and lay down. And when your soul is tired, that many saints have turned to Psalm 23 for rest and for healing and for recentering. Think of how many times you've shed tears on your pillow where your, your, your tears have been uh, your sleep, so to speak, and your pillow just supported you and sustained you. The Psalm 23 works in the same way. The Lord invites us <clears throat> to bring our sorrow, our sadness, a weakness to it, and it promises to encourage us. But we're not the only ones to like this psalm. If you look at your reflection quote, I, you don't have to do it. It's really long. But what we discover is that this has been a psalm of the church. And when I say the church, I'm talking about the early church. That if you were to ask someone in the early church, who are you? Tell me about Christianity. What is the essence of your faith? what they would say is that we are people of the Good Shepherd. And that was simple enough and yet profound enough to bring understanding and clarity to what could be a complex faith. Psalm 23 says our faith is simple and it's sweet and it's beautiful. What I want to do is sort of think through some fundamental identities that the psalm puts out. I want to ask the question, what does it say about us? and sort of our core identity, I want to step and say, okay, what does it say about God and one of his core identities? And then what does it say about Jesus? Because I think these psalms are about Jesus. And the idea of metaphor, like that is just so common in the Bible that we just sang a song, you're my rock, my strength, my shield, you're the wheel in the middle of the wheel, right? And what we're trying to do with these metaphors is lay hold of who God is and his complexity and his beauty and, and sort of bring it down into terms that we can relate. And so some of those terms are, are not far into the Bible. You turn over to Psalm, I think it's Psalm 17. Uh, let me get this right. No, it's not Psalm 17. It's Psalm 18. I love you, Lord. You're my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rock, my shield. That you see all in the Psalms are giving us these images that we can lay hold of the beauty of God. And so what I want to do is just work through that. Who, who does the Bible say we are, we in terms of, of humans? 
Now, we got to answer that question because I think there's a metaphor behind the metaphor. In other words, it's obvious that Psalm 23 is a metaphor where God is a shepherd. But I want to make the case to you that there's another metaphor behind that metaphor that we sort of have to wrestle with. Because if God is a shepherd, then what, what is God saying about us? And now before we get to that answer, I want to draw your attention to ancient Near Eastern um, theology, right? Animals were, were worshipped, right? That there were certain animals, right, who were sacred and strong and mighty in Egypt, and they were sort of exalted to this place of, of, of worship. Think about zodiac signs, right? Think about, you know, a cancer, uh, Leo the lion, right? Think about the Capricorn, all of these sort of this way that we get caught up in astrology. And, and, and so you ask the question, well, what's your zodiac sign? And what we're hoping, right, you're, you're, if, if you're a lion or, or Leo, then, then some, something in your personality resonates with that of a lion. It works also in, in Chinese astrology, right? They have different signs, but you have a tiger and an ox and a dragon and a goat and a monkey and a rooster and a dog. Think about, uh, I think our world has always wrestled with this correlation between the human and the animals, the human kingdom and the animal kingdom. Think about uh, Marvel. You know, think about the Black Panther. What is that about, right? That's this man who has sort of the quickness and strength and agility of a Black Panther, right? And so somehow in this superhero, what we're combining is these, these, these animal behaviors that basically helps this person fight crime. Think about Batman, right? Think about Catwoman. Think about Wolverine. Think about Ant-Man, right? That what you're looking at when you look into the Marvel Universe and you look into, uh, what's the other one? Not, who does Superman? DC Comics, right? What they're doing is they're sort of tapping into this, 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 this affair that we have with animal world, the animal kingdom. Who amongst you when you were kids did not want to be an animal, right? Man, I wish I had the speed of a cheetah, right? Right? Have we said that before? Think about your favorite football teams, right? The Atlanta Falcons, the Philadelphia Eagles, Chicago Bears, the Denver Broncos, the Carolina Panthers, the Detroit Lions, the Los Angeles Rams, the Baltimore Ravens, the Miami Dolphins, right? What you're starting to get is that, and here's the thing, when teams are choosing mascots, they really hope that something in this animal that's on our chest will be show itself in the team, right? The Atlanta Falcons, they want you to believe that they will soar on the field. Chicago Bears, they want you to believe that their defense is stout on the field, right? You get the imagery. Now, here's the thing. Would you go to, all right, all right. So you, you get the point, right? <laughs> There's just this fascination with animals. And the animals that we tend to wear on our jerseys, the animals that we tend to want to be like, they're like apex predators. They're at the top of the food chain. A falcon, a lion, a panther, a bear, like who's going to come eat a bear? No one, right? Now, here's what David does. David says, I got an animal that we're like. And what he puts on the table is not a lion, and it's not a bear, and it's not a falcon. It's not an apex predator. What he puts on the table and says that we're really more alike is a lamb sheep. Now think about that. You wouldn't go see the Philadelphia sheep, <laughs> right? That, that doesn't sound right. If they did a mascot search and Jackson was getting a professional team and someone put sheep on there, it would not get votes, right? If Marvel were to create sheep man or sheep woman, <laughs> like really, what would their power be? I mean, really, like what? What would it be? You going to fleece me to death, right? You know? <laughs> you get the point that what David is doing is it is, it is, cross, it is, it is against the grain, right? It is countercultural. And here's what David is doing. He's not making this up. This correlation between human and sheep 
and not human and lion and not human and eagle and not even the passage where the Lord says you will mount up with wings like eagles. If you look at it in its context, it's actually saying you're weak and the Lord is not weak and he himself will give you strength. And when he gives you his strength, you will become an eagle. But without his strength, you are a lamb, right? That's the point. Now, why? Why is David doing this? It's because you can look at Psalm 100, which was our call to worship. We are the sheep of his pasture. You can look at Ezekiel 34. You can look at John chapter 10. You can look at Isaiah 53. You can look at 1 Peter chapter 5. You can look at our passage right here. You can look at Luke 15, Psalm 78. And I could stay here for at least 15 more minutes unpacking all the times in Scripture where what humans are correlated to in the animal kingdom, sheep. Now, here's what we know about sheep, right? They don't have the agility of a cheetah, and they don't have the protection of a turtle, and they don't have like the spines of a porcupine, and they don't have the size and strength of a bear, and they don't have the prowess of a falcon. They have nothing, right? Like, they can't run fast. What are they going to attack you with? They're not the smartest in the animal kingdom either. They get lost. They can't defend themselves. They're prone to wonder. Prone to wonder. They aren't special. They're dependent. A sheep without a shepherd is lunch. <laughs> You're lunch. You're somebody's lunch, right? And think about that. That's you, and that's me. And I know we hear a lot about human strength and human might and human ingenuity and blah, 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 right? It's nothing strong about a casket. You know, it's nothing strong that all it takes is a beautiful woman to walk by you and your heart is gone. All it takes is a handsome man to walk by you and your heart is already gone. All it takes is your neighbor's kids on the soccer field to score three goals and your kid did not get in the game and your heart is gone. Like all it takes is someone to cut in front of you when you're driving and your heart is gone. Like all it takes is your neighbor getting something that you don't have and your heart is gone. All it takes is someone in the classroom making a better grade than you and all of a sudden your heart is gone. You don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. Who amongst us would dare say that, that I know without a doubt that I will be standing on the earth tomorrow? No one can say that. A blood clot the size of your pen tip can take you out of here in a minute. Think about the studs that's in this building right now that's behind the drywall. They will outlive you. That in a hundred years, wood in some of your homes have been there before your grandparents were born. That you and I will go to the grave and we will rot and the studs supporting our home will still be there. And we have the audacity to think that we're strong and we're mighty and that we're independent, David says, please, we're like sheep. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. You can't fall out of a tree. Me and my son were throwing the baseball a few weeks ago in the front yard, and I threw it, and it landed right under a tree, and he goes to pick the ball up, and he sees like this little animal and he's like, Dad, it's like a little animal over here. And I'm like, man, get the ball. Come on, man. You know, he's like, no, for real. And I go over there and I, it's a little ugly baby squirrel. <laughs> and I'm like, man, let's just, let's just flush him. Let's just, you know, throw him in the drain, right? And we didn't. We did not, I promise. <laughs> so he got me on the phone and we're looking up animal control. And I'm just like, okay, who do I take a baby squirrel? 
And I'm talking to this lady, and she says, hey, you know, it, it's the time. Squirrels made and have their kids right now, and he, she, two times a year. And she says, look up, you'll probably find a squirrel nest. And you look up to the top of this tree, right, and you see all these nests, right? Here's the thing. If that were you and I and we had fallen out of the top of a tree, the little dude was still living. It was a little lady, actually, right? <laughs> and I, I put him in a bag. We put him in a box, and we met a lady out in Flowood. And this lady started to nurse this squirrel that fell out of a tree that had that been a person, you would have been broken up. There may be squirrels more resilient than you, human. Now, have you come to grips with your weakness and your frailty? Because that's what David is pushing. That's the metaphor behind the metaphor. At your core and at my core, we're not strong. We're weak. Now, what he offers us in this psalm is there is a possibility of strength but it's alien to us, right? It, 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 it's not found in who, who we are. It's found in the one who looks after us, right? And, and that's the beauty of this psalm. We are not strengthless. We are not weak if there is someone with us who is strong, who is keeping watch, who will defend and fight and keep and will not lose one of us, then we can own our weakness and accept it because our weakness gives way for a better strength. And David says, yes, we're weak, but there is someone who is strong. We have a strong shepherd and the person of God. Now, what I want to do is sort of look at this, this psalm through three frames, right? I want to look at this, this first frame, then we'll come to a second frame, and we'll finish with a third frame. I think David is, is saying, like, hey, man, like, you have a strong shepherd. In this first frame, it's through good times. Now, if you want to take notes, that's, that's point two, indent it a little bit, and put A. A strong shepherd in good times. And I think that is verses one through three. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, and because he's my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, I think when we see that, that, that initial phrase, I shall not want, we sort of think that God is like a genie, that we sort of rub the bottle, and he's, he's here to give me all of my wants. And so if I want a wife, then I rub the bottle, say, God, I want a wife, and then poof, right, a wife shows up. Or God, like, I want children, and I rub the bottle, and like, poof, like, children kind of show up. Or, and you can kind of, you know, you can go to more trivial things, like those brand new Jordans coming out, right? You know. But here's the thing, like, we, we got to be really careful. One, that, that I think in American culture, we have a really bad tendency to, how do I want to say it? I think we can just abuse the Lord, that we think he's our personal genie and we ask him for what he wants and he gives it to us when we want it, how we want it. And I think we can get in this really bad posture of that's the way we sort of look at him. And a guy by the name of Kenneth Bailey, he says, our entire economic system is built on creating and then satisfying as many perceived wants as possible. Television advertising is deliberately fashioned to catch the viewer's attention and create a sense of I must have this in order to be healthy, entertained, happy, and successful. And the goal in America appears to be create wants and then turn them into felt needs and then make God a means to get those felt needs, right? Now, here's the reason that we have to step back because remember how the psalm flows. It does not flow from humans down to sheep. Rather, it flows from sheep up to humans. And that's a big question because when it says that I, as a, she as a sheep, that I have no wants, we have to interpret that through the lens of a sheep. And what does it mean for a sheep to have no wants? And I think you start to arrive at a different answer. He goes on to say that the psalmist has a very basic set of wants that the shepherd provides. That list includes food and drink and tranquility and rescue and loss and freedom from the fear of evil and death. An ever-rising mountain of material possessions is not on the sheep's list. You hear what he's saying? 
The shepherd gives his sheep their needs. He gives them what they want. And what they want is safety, security, provision, rest. And what a shepherd wants is to be near its shepherd. And that is what God promises you in the gospel. I might not give you a spouse. And I might not give you children. But I'll give you me. And I'll give you what you need. That's the promise behind the song. He goes on to say that, that he makes me lie down in green pastures. And he leads me beside still waters. Another guy by the name of Philip Keller, no relationship to Tim, he says, sheep will only lie down if they have plenty to eat, have quenched their thirst, and are not threatened by any wild animals. Furthermore, a sheep, they're not like dogs. They cannot be trained to sit and lie down. Sheep will only lie down when they are full and safe. Here's what he's saying. You can't train a sheep to go sit. They're going to sit when they're full and when they're safe, period, right? And here's what he's saying. A better way to understand this is that the Lord will lead you to rest because he will take care of all his and your enemies, and he will fill you with himself and your needs, and you will find rest in him. That's what the psalm is saying. He also says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now, there is some discussion around verse 3, and, and, and I'll let you into it because I think it's important. If you look at page 3 in your bulletins, look at the bottom. We're going to sing our song of response. It's the king of love my shepherd is. And it's actually Psalm 23 written to music. And it was written in the 1800s by um, a man by the name of Henry Baker, 1868. But notice, the king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never, and nothing lack if I am his and he is mine forever. Where streams of living water flow, my ransomed soul he leadeth. And where the verdant pastures grow, with food celestial feedeth, perverse and foolish oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing bought me. Where is that verse? And home rejoicing bought me, perverse and foolish oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me. He is correlating that to verse 3 in the psalm. If you go look at what Isaac Watts, who wrote in the 1700s, here is his version of Psalm 23. He brings my wandering spirit back when I forsake his ways and leads me for his mercy's sake in paths of truth and grace. In other words, our Bibles here says he restores my soul. But if you go back 200, 300, 400 years, that is not how we understood verse 3. We understood verse 3, not just that he restores my soul, but my soul was straying over to the right, and he snatched me off of straying and back to himself, right? So which one is right? All right. In the Hebrew, that word for restore, it can mean restore. And it also can mean return or bring back. All right? I think that's the first clue. The second thing is, is the way that it's written, it, 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 it's, it's a more intense use of the verb. So I might say that he hit the ball. I might also say he crushed the ball, right? Which one is more intense? He crushed. Now, when you look at this verb, it's intense. So it's not just that he restored or brought back, but you could literally say he snatched me 
right? He snatched me. He snatched my soul from wondering, and he does more than that. He does more than snatch me off of the path of unrighteousness, but it says that he leads me down paths of righteousness for his namesake. And so think about the image. If sheep wonder, which Jesus says they do in, in, in Luke 15, he says, I will leave the 99 and I will go find the one and I will get the one and bring the one back on my shoulders, right? And there will be joy in heaven over the one who goes a lost and is now back. Now, lay that on top of Psalm 23, I think you get the same image. You get the image that the sheep is wandering and straying and getting lost. He's lost his way, and what the good shepherd does is he goes back and he snatches his sheep out of the throes of death, and he himself brings his own sheep back, and he does more than just direct it back to the, to the fold. He puts the sheep back on the path of righteousness. Why does he do it? For his namesake. See that? Not because the sheep are worthy. Not because we're special. Because he has his name on the line. If he promises to be a shepherd who will not lose one of his sheep, then to lose one of his sheep makes God a liar. And God is not a liar, and therefore his own name and his own glory is at stake for the reclaiming of lost sheep, and that is what he says the good shepherd will do. You're mine, and I will not lose you ever ever, ever, ever. Now, isn't that like really good news? That's this scene. That, that, he's the shepherd of good times, right? He will make sure that we get what we need. He will come get us when we stray. He will fill us with all that we need that we might rest. But you get to the second scene in the song, in verses 4 and 5. And you're moving from good times. You're moving from uh, a pasture and green pastures and still waters. And notice the movement. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, think about the image. Green pastures, valleys of darkness. And what David is saying, he's not just the good shepherd of good times. He's going to be the good shepherd in hard times. Now, it's important because the shepherd has to lead sheep where he wants them to go. And night will inevitably come and mountains are out there and deep valleys are there. And the shepherd has to get us where he wants us to be. And we're going to find ourselves in dark seasons. You've been there before? We all have. You might be there now. Have you looked at our prayer list? There are people who've been on it for months and years. And that valley is long and it's hard. And that's not to even mention those things that we're going through that we're afraid to put in the bulletin. And I think that's here, right, for a reason. Some of you are awaiting results from a doctor. Some of you will be traveling to Texas and to Florida for treatment. And some of you, your marriages are hard. You're struggling with loneliness. Some of you have had miscarriages. Some of you are dealing with this idea of growing old and watching a spouse lose their minds and lose their health. This psalm is helpful because it says four things to us. First, you are not out of your mind that life can be scary and fear is real. Second, no one in this room is above it. We all encounter valleys in life. Third, some valleys can't be avoided. Notice the shepherd doesn't take them around them, under them, or over them. He says, even though I walk through the valley, 
that where God is leading us, sometimes we have to simply go through the darkness. And notice, David says, I, I will not fear. And I think it's important, right? I think we live in what we think is Eden. But if you look at sort of how artists in time have portrayed where we live all of our lives, it's not where you think. I think I can get so used to having a job and having kids and having a wife and having a house and having a car that this world starts to kind of look really, really good and beautiful. And then the Lord kind of sends these things that reminds me, you're still not home yet. Don't get home. You're not home yet. And all it takes is a doctor's appointment to say you're not home yet, right? Think about how artists in history have tried to capture where we live. All right, Jimmy. If I mess this guy's name up, y'all forgive me. Gustave Doré, right? Or Dor, I don't know how you say it. But this is, I mean, this guy put together a whole picture Bible back in the 1800s. And what he tried to do was to, to capture the important scenes in Scripture. And this is the scene of Adam and Eve being driven out of Eden. And notice the angel is in their rear, and there's light and presumably uh, heaven on earth behind them. But look at them and look at their demeanor. And look at the, it's just dry appearing, it's dirt, it's, 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 it's not lush, that it's, it's, it's dark and scary, right? That that's where we live our lives, right? We don't live our lives back there. We're living our lives out of Eden. Next slide. This is from the famous Jesus Storybook Bible. This is the third or fourth page. Look at the giraffe and the animals and the rhinos and the toucan, right? They're like, bro, what happened, right? Y'all messing up for us too? What happened, right? <laughs> and look at Adam and Eve. And look, look at what's over their head, a, a, a storm cloud, a really subtle image that we're living our lives not in Eden anymore. We're living our lives in a broken and fallen world. And in that world, there are valleys of darkness that we will walk through. Now, David says, thank you, Jimmy. He says, I fear no evil. Now, now why? And here's the fourth thing. God will meet you there. How do we know? Something exegetically, and when I say exegetically, I mean if you sort of look at the words in the psalm, and not just sort of the psalm itself, but kind of dig down deeper into the words that David used, notice a shift. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for he is with me. Is that what it says? No. There's a pronoun shift. He says, you are with me. Your rod and your staff will comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In other words, the pronoun shift in Psalm 23 from he, he's talking about God, to in the valley of darkness, he's talking to God. Where does God physically show up in the psalm? It's in the darkness. That is where David is face-to-face -face talking with the Lord and not about the Lord. And that's a difference. In other words, where does God start to draw near? In the valley, in the hard moment in life. And I think we have to stop and pause and say whatever is going on in this psalm, what we have to at least acknowledge is that there is a knowledge of God's grace that is made known to us, not when everything is right, but when things are wrong and we're suffering. He has special grace that knocks on your door and sits with you and stays in hard times with you. That I know that's true. I felt it 
and my own life. That I've met with people in this room right now who have been in the throes of suffering and agony and the world around them is falling apart and what they're saying in concert with their suffering is I can't explain it, but the Lord is near and he's in it with me and I feel his presence in a way that I've not felt it, that he, he, he moves towards the darkness to be near his people. If I put a microphone up here, And let each one of you who have felt this, we will be here all day. And some of it is mystical, and we don't understand why. And you know what? I'm okay with a little mysticism. I'm okay with the Spirit kind of doing what I don't understand, and I can't put my finger on it. I'm going to save room for the Spirit to do what the Spirit wants to do when He wants to do it. And if He chooses to draw near in suffering and this be something that He does, come on. If you're in it with me, then we're good. And that's what David is saying. And it's not just God's presence, it's God's weapons. Notice what he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Two weapons. Now, shepherds had three weapons. One is a sling. David used a sling to kill Goliath. We believe that slings were kind of used for animals that might be far off and they wanted to scare them and run them away. You do a sling, right? But if you had like a really vicious animal that wasn't thinking about your slingshot, right? And that was still kind of coming. What'd you do then, Jimmy? So it says your rod. So these are rods. And you'll notice they're, they're, they're probably three feet long. And you'll notice that they're kind of, it's a weighted end. So one end is always heavier. One end is always reinforced. And if you, you know, in the, in the fourth one from the top, dude got a spear on his, right? And so he'll, he'll jug you, right? But if you look at the third one from the top, you, you can't see it, but there are nails kind of going through it. And so we believe that this is what shepherds would keep with them. One hole, it would tie to their sides. And, and when, if their animals were attacked, they would pull that out. And, you know, when David says that I killed a bear and a lion, it says I struck him. You know what he didn't strike a lion with? A shepherd's staff. You're not going to kill no lion with a shepherd's staff. You might knock his head off or something like that, Right. You might put some holes in his face and, you know, whatever, but it's that image there. The sheep can't protect themselves, and so the the shepherd stays ready. He said, I stay ready to defend my people, always. And that's what the Lord says to you, beloved. I stay ready to defend you and to fight for you against whomever, whenever, however, for however long it takes I'm your defender. Now, that's not the only weapon he has, right? The next one is a shepherd's staff or crook. Now, I tried to get a really good picture. I couldn't get one, but you get the gist. These are longer and have a curved end and numerous reasons, right? You see Buddy on the right, like he kind of has the sheep under the throat. It does not hurt the sheep, I promise you. And he is probably shaving him or something. But the real reason that the shepherd's staff is important is because when sheep would get lost, that what the shepherd could do with the staff is sort of nudge him back this way. If he was caught between rocks, that the shepherd could take his staff and, and, and grab it under the throat and, and bring it back. And so here's what you understand, that in those dark moments, it doesn't matter if you're being attacked. Your shepherd has you with the rod, and it doesn't matter if you're the one straying. Your shepherd has you with the staff, and so whatever reason you are in the hard season in life, your shepherd says, I don't care. You're my sheep, and I'm going to rescue you one way or the other. You're still mine. Thank you, Jimmy. And then it moves to the table. It says, you prepare a table Before me, you, notice the you, so it is still personal, it is still in the hard season, you prepare a table before me, and notice the presence of enemies, and you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is all happening in the valley, and this is where a subtle shift in metaphors, the language moves from a shepherd and sheep to a host and a feast. 
And notice where the feast is happening, it's happening in the moments of darkness. Now, we've seen that happen before, right? Think about what Jesus says in Luke 15. Remember the lost coin, and then the lost sheep, and then the lost son, and the lost sons. And then what happened? What does the father do in Luke 15? He throws a feast for the lost son in the presence of the son's accusers. You get it? Why are you going to throw him a sheet? Why are you going to throw him a party? Why are you going to do all of this? They're, uh, they're antagonizing him and blasting him, and the father still lays a spread out. I think that's what's happening in this, in this song, that there's a table, that this oil is used as a sign of hospitality, that his cup overflowing is perhaps a nice bottle of wine, that this is a lavish party that the, the shepherd throws for the sheep. Ken Bailey, he says, in Middle Eastern culture, wealth is shown through radical, lavish hospitality rather than acquiring more possessions. When you acquire wealth in our culture, you, di you don't go and get an extra car or a bigger home or more stuff to be admired from the outside and by passerbys. He says, what we do do is throw good parties with tons of guests, and you eat great food and drink great wine. Now, Ken Bailey is a pastor who's been living in the Middle East for 40 years who is pastor shepherds. So we're, not, we're talking about like someone who lives there in that context, and he is telling us what's going on in Psalm 23. He says, look, in our culture, this is hospitality. The shepherd throws a party for lost and abused sheep. He says, come and eat at my table and drink lavishly. I've made the connection here at Redeemer over and over again. I think this is what's, some of what's going on at the Lord's table, that when we come to this table and eat of the bread and drink of the wine, I know that all hell is breaking loose in some of our lives. And what the Lord does during that season is lay a spread out right here and says, you are still mine. And that out there is not touching my covenant relationship with you. You are still safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus. And I will make the case that this table doesn't just stay here. It's your table, beloved. Have you ever been in the throes of sorrow and sadness? The last thing you want is to be locked up in your room, in your darkness alone. What do you want in hard, bitter moments in life? You want a table, and you want conversation around the table, and you want food that ministers to your body and drink that ministers to your soul and laughter and the prayers and fellowship of God's people, and you want that to be spread out even though everything around you is breaking apart. And that is what David says the good shepherd does. And if we're following the way of the good shepherd, that is what we do. And so if you're in this good season in life and you're drinking by still waters and you're in good pasture land and your brother and sister is in the darkness, you know the connection? Pursue them. Love them. Listen. And if you're in the darkness, let us in. Let us pray. Let us serve you. That this is one of God's means of ministering to you and I in our brokenness. Does it get better than this, right? You got a shepherd in good times, a shepherd in bad times, and the last thing David says it does get better because you got a shepherd for all time.
Think about that, right? Look at it. Look at what he says in verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me when? Part of the days of my life? It says, all of the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord for how long? Forever. That's a good shepherd. You got me when it's good, and you got me when it's bad, and you got me forever and ever and ever. Forever, forever, ever. <laughs> right? You know the song, right? You know the song. Forever, ever. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's in the song. He got you forever, beloved. Isn't that good news? Forever. Forever. Now, here's the thing. I want to close with this. And I'm talking particularly to two different people. One, if you're a believer, what is the guarantee? What right do you have to actually have this kind of confidence, right? And I'm also talking to the non-believer, right? That, that, that what is our right? And what is the right? Like, like how, do, how does this, because this psalm is personal. David doesn't just say the Lord is a shepherd. He says the Lord is my shepherd, right? It's really, really personal. And so we have to step back and say, what makes this strong shepherd personal and mine? How do I know, right, that my weakness has been joined with his strength? How do I know that me and my frailty has been united with this strength so that he is strong for me? How do we know? And the answer is, you know, it's Jesus. We go through this every week, right? Is Jesus all Jesus everything, right? You know, there's a story of a man. His name was uh, uh, Richard Nares, and he had a son by the name of Emilio. And Emilio was diagnosed with leukemia when he was three. Emilio uh, lived for three more years, and then Emilio died. And during those three years, Richard had the privilege, and he calls it a privilege, of taking Emilio to the hospital in San Diego. And he got to know a lot of parents and a lot of other children who were suffering with cancer. And he noticed, right, that, that, that kids were really haphazard in, in how they showed up for treatment. He noticed that parents would be frantic. He noticed that they were having trouble with childcare. He noticed that many kids would often miss appointments. And so after his son died, he, he went to the hospital. He says, hey, I want to sort of do something. Like, what's the biggest thing I can do in the memory of my son? What do these children with cancer need? He said, they said one thing, transportation. In other words, they're sick and they're dying. And over here, you have this hospital with medicine and doctors who can treat them. But what they were saying is the greatest barrier to uniting their weakness to his strength or their strength is transportation. We need someone to bridge the gap. And here's the question that I want to ask you. Who bridges the gap? It's not enough to just say I'm weak. God already knows that. And it's not enough to say God is strong. He already knows that. The question is, what is it that unites your weakness to his strength? And it's not a what, beloved, it's a who. Who unites you and I and our weakness to the strength of the Father? Who does that? Jesus says, I do. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and they hear my voice. And they will come through the door, and they will enter into good pasture. I am the good shepherd. All before me were hirelings, but I am the good shepherd, and I will lay down my life for my sheep. And I will take it up again. This commandment has been given to me by the Father. In other words, what Jesus is saying, who brings us into the fold of God? It's the shepherd who was slain for the sheep who wonder. 
You see, I think David's up to something. If you turn back one psalm and look at Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their, their mouths wide at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. You know who this psalm is about? Psalm 22 is words that Jesus uttered from the cross. And you don't get Psalm 23 where the Lord is your shepherd without your shepherd being slain in Psalm 22. But if your shepherd was slain for your sins, He cried out and did not get an answer so that whenever you cry out in the darkness, you're guaranteed an answer. He was ignored on the cross so that when you're in the low moments in life, you are not ignored. He was, the Father drew away from him on the cross so that he can stay with you in the darkness. What's the guarantee, beloved, that all of these promises in Psalm 23 are ours? Psalm 22. And if you're in Jesus, he is a strong shepherd for weak sheep. And if you've not repented of your sins, might today be the day where you come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good news and thank you for the privilege that we have right this moment to hear this psalm and now to sing it. I pray that you would sing, we would sing it and that it would seep down into our hearts. Might your word and your people and your spirit and the sacraments be means by which you draw near to us. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.